Hello and welcome to another episode of Christ in Context, a podcast dedicated to seeing Christ in all of Scripture and using all of Scripture to filter all of life. My name is Kevin and I am your host and so glad that you are listening to this episode. Today we are going to be talking about something that really excites me. Um, We're just going to keep diving into different uh, scriptures this one, uh, we are going to be talking about Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Um, this one, I've I've heard this passage taken out of context, probably more than I've heard it put in its uh, rightful context. So, um, I'm just going to read the passage first. I'm gonna I'm <laughs> trying to be more organized and more uh, thought through and. Uh, each of these episodes, so just have mercy on me as I'm trying to figure out how to podcast. It's hard. Um, I'm re- I, I think the general order is going to be read the text, explain kind of where it might go wrong, um, and then you know dive into some of the the context surrounding it, and then just exposit it. Um, do some exegesis and let's just see what we come up with so um and keep in mind i've also done some research beforehand so i'm not just like willy-nilly throwing stuff out as it comes to me i think that's kind of irresponsible so philippians 2 verse 5 and through 11 says Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So there's a lot that uh, is going on. We're not going to get into every single detail of each and every verse, but the reason why we're going to be talking about this passage is because it currently has been producing what we call um, kenotic theology or uh, kenosis theology, which uh, comes from the the Greek word um, kenao, which just literally means to empty. So it's coming from that uh, verse where where it says that Jesus emptied himself. Uh, He he didn't regard the, the divine privileges as something to be, or... Uh, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he echineso, ek, sorry, echinosin, which is from kenao. He emptied himself. So uh, that in itself, understanding that that word means to empty isn't a problem because that's a good translation of the word. However, uh, let me define kenotic theology. So kenotic theology or uh, kenotic Christology first was introduced in the late 1800s by a German theologian, 
Gottfried Tamasius. He lived from 1802 to 1875, and this is based on the idea that Jesus actually laid aside some of his divinity in order to be more like human beings. So now I think things are starting to hopefully sound a little bit more familiar. Maybe you've heard a sketchy preacher here and there, maybe... Well, I hope that you haven't, but you I'm hoping that you're able to relate and, you know, make the connections that oh, this is what Kevin's talking about. Um I I'm pretty sure that this is something that's unfortunately coming more out of like the charismatic side of Christianity things. Uh people like and and I'm not going to confirm because I don't want to be held liable for saying that one person said this and then actually be proven wrong that they didn't um you know i'm not trying to gossip or um slander anyone by any means but from from what i've heard and uh some things that i've i've seen is that you know people like bill johnson and todd white and uh i'm sure you know kenneth copeland has probably been accused of this where they play play down the uh, role of Jesus and his incarnation. They say that Jesus just set aside his divinity. He laid it down and he lived this perfect life as, uh, as a Holy Spirit anointed and uh, um, he submitted to Christ or he submitted to the Spirit perfectly as an example of what we, uh, what we ought to do. And that's where things are starting to get problematic. Because if Jesus was just living his life as a perfect example, then that in itself is not sufficient to save us. His death on the cross means absolutely nothing. Um, because we see throughout other... Uh, scriptures that he was he's the mediator between God and man so his incarnation our proper understanding of his incarnation is crucial in our understanding of our own salvation if we don't understand Christ as fully God and fully man he cannot be the uh, perfect mediator between God and man he can't he, he needs to be God in order to bear the eternal wrath of God, but he also needs to be man in order to um, sufficiently substitute for us. So um, I took a class this past semester about uh, early church councils and creeds, and one of the things we talked about was, well, obviously we talked about the Council of Chalcedon, and one of the things leading up to that was this issue of Nestorianism, which started to rise after some of the issues with um, the Trinity had kind of been settled, and then we get these issues of Christology, or Christology, um, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced both ways, where people are starting to duke it out. You know, how do we understand the incarnation of Christ? So um, I've kind of understood this canonic theology as a hyper Nestorianism. So Nestorianism as it as it is is uh, Nestorius understood Christ as 
two persons, uh, just kind of like basically two souls like swimming around next to each other. So let me, let me read from a book that I had where it says that, uh, the only kinds of union of such different entities, that is, uh, God and man, Nestorius could admit were conjunction and mixture. So either they were separate or they were totally mixed. So he rejected the latter as producing some kind of demigod and he was forced back on the former. So he was, according to his understanding, he was, or at least what he was accused of. We we talked about that there was a chance Nestorius wasn't even an historian. I don't want to get into that because I want to spend a lot of time on this text. Um, so the accusation, at least, of Nestorianism, the heresy that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon, is that... Um, the incarnation were two separate souls, uh, two separate uh, beings that are uh, working together, and that's not how we understand the hypostatic union, which is now form- formally, like, formally, sorry, I can't talk, formally how we define who Christ is. So I'm going to, at the Council of Chalcedon, um, well, bef- right before this, there were there was a a guy named Cyril and he wrote a letter to Nestorius and he was he, in the letter he had a bunch of anathemas and he was basically trying to provoke Nestorius to repent and recant what he had said and so I'm going to read a couple of the anathemas to kind of give you a better idea of things that go along with this idea of Nestorianism so. I'm going to read, if you can find um, Cyril's letter to Nestorius or the anathemas of the Council of Chalcedon, I'm reading anathemas 3, 5, 6, 7, and 9. So number 3 is, if anyone divides the hypostases um, in the one Christ after the union, joining them only by a conjunction in dignity or authority, or power, and not rather by coming together in a union by nature, let him be anathema. Number five is, if anyone dares to say that Christ was a God-bearing man, and not, rather, God in truth, being by nature one son, inasmuch as the word became flesh, and is made partaker of blood and flesh, precisely like us, let him be anathema. If anyone's number six, if anyone says that the word of God, the father was the God or master of Christ and does not rather confess the same, both God and man, the word having become flesh, according to the scriptures, let him be anathema. Number seven, if anyone says that Jesus was energized as a man by the word from God and clothed with the glory of of the only begotten as being another besides him, let him be anathema. Number nine, this is the last one. If anyone, well, there's 12 total, but this is the last one I'm reading. If anyone says that the one Lord Jesus Christ was glorified by the spirit as making use of an alien power that worked through him and received from him the power to prevail over unclean spirits and to accomplish divine wonders among men and does not rather say that it was his own spirit, 
through whom also he worked the divine wonders, let him be anathema. So this last one is especially where I've seen some of the issues where I've heard, I've heard it with my own ears, not just from uh, people far away like Bill Johnson and Todd White, but I'm pretty sure I've heard this or maybe not as direct and clear, but similar things that Jesus lived a perfect life as a model for how we ought to submit to the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus could do it, then we can do it as well. Um, And then there's another passage, which we'll probably get into at another time. I haven't planned it out, but um, there's a passage where Jesus says uh, to his disciples that they'll do greater things than him, which just as a summary basically means not in um, quality, but in quantity, because the ministry of the followers of Jesus is continuing to this day. So there's more uh, more time rather than Jesus's earthly ministry. So just that short little um, side note. Uh, but the the last anathema, I bring that up specifically because people say, oh, well, Jesus was just a man. He's uh, he uh, let go of his divinity and was you know was submiss- submitting to the Holy Spirit. So um, I was while I was doing some research on this, um, I was listening to John Piper explain this passage, and he had a really interesting point where he said, if you screw this up, then you screw up your ethical understanding of servitude. Um, and then on to the same point, I was reading just a little excerpt of John Chrysostom, uh, one of his homilies on this passage where he makes a differentiation between the work of a servant and the form of a servant. So Chrysostom, (coughs) excuse me, had something in my throat. Chrysostom says, he took, they say, the form of a servant when he girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. Is this the form of a servant? Nay, this is not the form, but the work of a servant. It is one thing that there should be the work of a servant and another to take the form of a servant. Why did he not say he did the work of a servant, which were clear, but nowhere in scripture is form put for work. For the difference is great. The one is the result of nature, the other of action. So he's making this this distinction where form is a result of nature and work is a result of our action. And um, again, if Jesus was just... um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. <clears throat> I'm kind of tired today. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night. I had a late uh, late night working and then just got up early for church. So uh, my mind is, have, I'm drawing a lot of blanks every couple minutes. And anyways, um, so Chrysostom is saying that Jesus is um, taking the form of a servant, as in um, his 
form is like he's taking on the nature of a servant um, rather than the just performing the deeds. Um, so it, it's interesting, interesting to think about. Um, you can find the whole sermon on Bible Hub if you go to um, if you look up Philippians two five through eleven, and then you go to the commentaries that they have. They've you'll find Chris Hostum's homilies. So yeah, it's really interesting. So now let's just dive in. Let's talk about um, let's go verse by verse. So, um, verse five, have this attitude in yourself, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is right after, um, Paul, I mean, so Philippians, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with the context of it, Paul's writing from prison. So he's, uh, been in prison because he is continually preaching the gospel and, uh, the authorities tell him stop it and he doesn't. And so he gets arrested uh, short summary version of that. So he's been talking about um, the glory of, uh, you know, in chapter one, we have one of those famous verses for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he is just encouraging the the church in Philippi not to be dismayed in their suffering. And so he's um, encouraging them you know, we get to chapter two where he's talking about servitude, you know, do nothing in verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Um, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then we get verse five, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this attitude of regarding others as more important than ourselves and not only having our own personal interests at mind, but the interests of others. And then he explains how this is performed. Uh, He says, you know, basically if we're serving Christ, if we are a slave to Christ, then we ought to live as close of a lifestyle as we can to him. So have this attitude, which was also in Christ who Uh, So he's naming Christ who, so now we're in verse six, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So I've got some commentary notes. I I compiled um, two different commentaries, the Expositors Bible Commentary, and then um, Craig Keener's IVP um, New Testament Commentary. And I know that Craig Keener is a Wesleyan, and so there's there's some people in the Reformed branch that just don't use any Wesleyan commentaries because they're Wesleyan, but I really think Craig Keener is a phenomenal commentator, a phenomenal New Testament scholar. He's got uh, basically encyclopedic knowledge, like he, you know, I've seen interviews where people ask him something and he just like start spitting just because he uh i heard him say i think he read through the new testament like once a week um while he was a new christian so he was reading like 
the New Testament once a week and then reading the Old Testament like every month. And I don't know how long he did that. But anyways, I'm, I'm just saying that because when we're examining the scriptures, we shouldn't only listen to people that we agree with. We should try to wrestle with some of the, the disagreements, some of the issues. This is why, I mean, we're talking about a heresy. We're talking about kenosis, something that um, can be very, very destructive in our understanding of Christ. And we're dealing with it so that, not not just so that we can point at it and say, hi, you're wrong, but so that we know why it's wrong and what is true. So, uh, I forgot to make a distinction between, so I have a list of quotes. I forgot to make a distinction between every single one, which one was from Keener and which one was from the expositors. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, but here, here is a note that I did know that is from Keener that I did make a note of. He says that some scholars suggest that Christ's being in the form of God alludes to Adam being formed in God's image. Unlike Adam, who, being human, sought divinity, Jesus, being deity, relinquished his rightful position of honor. So this is what we've been talking about, this problematic idea. Even more to the point here is that Jewish texts describe divine wisdom as the perfect archetypal image of God. So, uh, the, the difference that Keener makes is that Jesus isn't uh, relinquishing his deity in itself, but he's relinquishing his position of honor the position that a that Jesus as the second person of the trinity should rightfully have instead Jesus steps down and says hey i'm not going to hold on to the uh the honor that i already have he could just you know Jesus could just speak and everyone would have to obey and you know bow their knee but instead he humbles himself and uh, adds, we, we call this the, uh, we call the incarnation, um, how, how have I heard it said? Incarnation by addition or uh, submission by addition, something along the lines of that where he's, he's not losing anything, he's adding the, uh, the human flesh. And uh, we'll see, I'm, later down I've got um, something from what's called the Tome of Leo, and he Leo mentions something along the lines of that, so I won't get into that yet. So, uh, let's see, the Expositor's Commentary, I've, they, they make a note on the term morphe, which is translated as form. So, this term denotes the outward manifestation that corresponds to the essence which in contrast, the noun schemati, which is, um, let me see, I've got my Greek New Testament pulled up. I'm just trying to find it. Uh, He says in verse 7, and I can't find it. Anyways, um, so he says, 
in contrast to the noun schemati, which refers to the outward appearance to the essence, which may be temporary. So um, the form, the the point of this note is that um, the outward manifestation that corresponds to the essence, uh, morphe. So this is the very essence, the very being of who Christ is, is not being lost. And this is contrasted with the noun schemati. So, um, the expositors goes on to say that, to say that he was existing in the essential metaphysical form of God is tantamount to saying that he possessed the nature of God. The phrase is elaborated on by the words equality with God, which is isa theu, theo. Uh, it should be noted that, and this is going to get kind of technical, so it should be noted that isa is an adverb and not in the, it's, it's not the substantive isan, but it's an adverb, so it's modifying, um, Uh, the word regard. So, um, let's see. And hence describes the matter of existence. So, this does not need to be regarded as precisely the same as the form of God, for one's essential nature can remain unchanged, though the manner in which that nature is expressed can vary greatly, through changing times and circumstances. So, uh, Jesus is not changing any part of his nature, but he's adding on, um, he's adding something which doesn't change who he is at the, at the core of who he is. Um, it changes what, how it's expressed, but not, um, who he is. Verse seven, but, emptied himself. So he didn't regard uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So one note that I have, which I believe is from uh, the expositors, but at this point I stopped. When I was making my notes at this point, I just stopped um, making the differentiation, which is my bad entirely. So although the text does not directly state that Christ emptied himself of something, such would be the natural understanding when this verb is used. Uh, the word taking, labon, does not imply an exchange, but rather an addition. So, um, and labon is coming from lambano, which in, you know, your introduction to New Testament Greek, you'll learn that it means to take or to receive. And so, um, and when we first learned that, I remember our class being like, how does that mean the same thing? But if you're taking something, then you're receiving it. Um, it, it doesn't have the idea of um, exchanging something he's not taking something and then giving something away that's never really how that word is used well if it is used then there's the differentiation 
Um, so here we've got, you know, taking, adding something, receiving something by adding. So the form of God could not be relinquished for God cannot cease to be God, but our Lord could and did take on the very form of a lowly servant when he entered human life by the incarnation. This is kind of uh, what I've been explaining, that God can't cease to be God, which I hadn't said that yet, but he, you know, he, the form of God wasn't relinquished. His being hasn't been changed. He didn't let go of his being. But what's really important is that when we understand systematic theology would make the distinction of theology proper. Uh, God cannot cease to be God. Because if he did, then he would not categorically be God. Which, side note, I'm going to make, I was thinking about how I wanted to make this note of categories. I wasn't planning on doing it in this episode, but we're going to do it. Categories are very, very important when we're understanding the text, when we're understanding theology. Um, A lot of times people have this idea of, you know, you don't stop with the categories because you're putting God in a box. And I think I've probably made that error in saying that, but now I I love the idea of categories. I, I love the category of categories because we use categories in every other area of life. But when it comes to theology, for some reason, people have this aversion to the word, just the word categories. So, like, the way that I think about it is with food or um, books. So, like, with food, if you're hungry, like, you have categories of, like, okay, it's lunchtime, so now I'm going to start thinking of lunch food, or it's dinner time, so I'm going to start thinking of dinner food. But that's not always the case. Analogies always break down, but just bear with me that generally it's dinner time. Okay, I'm going to start thinking of dinner food. And then you start narrowing it down. What do I have a taste for? Uh, Meat. Okay, so now I'm thinking in the categories of meat. Okay, do I want a burger? Do I want a steak? Do I want uh, chicken? And what can I do with those things? And you start, you know, we have all of these categories. Same thing with books or entertainment. Uh, say with a book, what am I interested in reading right now? Do I want to read fiction? Do I want to read nonfiction? Um, do I want to read fantasy? Do I want to read sci-fi? Like we have so many categories, like that's just how the world functions in categories. And yet for some reason, when we get to talking about God, we just get scared that if we use categories to understand him the best way that we possibly can, we're going to put him in a box. But I think he's given us logical categories so that we can understand him and so that we can understand his word. So sorry about that little side tangent, but it had to be said, super important part of our reading of scripture and our understanding of theology. So In summation, back to uh, verse 7, in summation, Christ did not empty himself of the form of God, in other words, his deity, but 
of the manner of existence as equal to God. So he did not lay aside the divine nature, but the insignia of majesty, as this commentator said. And now I'm going to read from the Tome of Leo, because um, in this tome he makes, I mean, he uses words that are exactly from this verse. So Leo, and he's writing to Nestorius, I think. Let me double check, because <laughs> I, I could have just totally botched that. Um, oh, no, no, no. He was writing to uh, Eutyches. But this was uh, part of the, uh, yeah, so, so suppressed at Ephesus, the tome was approved at Chalcedon and is thus the one representative of Western theology in the official documents of the ecumenical councils. So this was used at the Council of Chalcedon, but it was not written to Nestorius. My apologies for screwing that up. So he took on, this is Leo, he's the Pope. Uh, So he says he took on him, that is Jesus, took on the form of a servant without the defilement of sins, augmenting or uh, glorifying by addition what was human, not diminishing what was divine because that emptying of himself, whereby the invisible made himself visible, and the creator and lord of all things willed to be one among mortals, was stooping down of compassion, not a failure of power. So this is, uh, I, I love how he says this. Jesus is not stepping down out of a failure of power. He's not losing any of his power, but he's stooping down out of his compassion. Uh, Maybe some would say that he... I don't think anyone would say that he lost his power. It wasn't uh, revoked by him, but he gave up the privileges of being omniscient, omnipotent, and uh, humbling himself as a servant, as the God-man. So then we've got verse 8. And I didn't have any notes on verse 8, but I'm going to read it just so we keep the flow of thought going. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is just an important note that um, Christ was obedient as a servant, a servant of the Father in our place, um, obedient to the point of death for our own salvation. Uh, So then I've got a few notes on verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So verse 9, this is where the logical flow of thought, some people would say, okay, without doing the research and the necessary uh, exegesis of this passage, that they would say, okay, Jesus gave up divine privileges or equality with God, however you want to say that. And then it says that God highly exalted him. So Jesus wasn't God, lived on earth, and then 
God exalted him at after the resurrection, which just isn't an accurate understanding. Before I get into some notes that I have, I'm just going to keep reading 10 through 11. So that, so God bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in verses 9 through 11, there was a connection that was made. Uh, Craig Keener made the connection to Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, uh, where, let me, I think I forgot to pull it up when I started recording, which is totally my fault. I'm just a scatterbrain all the time. So, as much as I think I'm prepared, I'm not actually prepared which is a terrible way to live. And yeah, it drives my wife crazy because I'm always running like five minutes behind and always like, it's, yeah, it's a hot mess. So Isaiah 52, 13 to 15 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. So uh, this connection is Jesus has this exalted servant um he is the one who uh, will prosper in isaiah 52 his name will be highly lifted up and greatly exalted just as paul says god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name um and what's really neat about this is this leads into the next chapter in Isaiah. The and so that those three verses in Isaiah are the end of fifty-two, and it leads into fifty-three, where we see the suffering servant, um, which I think is just fascinating. I don't know how strong of a connection Paul was actually drawing from fifty-two into fifty-three while he was writing this. Uh, which I forgot to mention, but these verses, five, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, are actually known as like a um, like the, the hymn of Christ, where some might think that this is an early church hymn that Paul wrote. Uh, or maybe he didn't write and, you know, was just like someone else wrote it before him and then he was just writing it in this chapter i kind of err like i i lean to the side that paul just wrote it while he was writing this and it turned into a hymn that people were singing so verse 11 paul does not imply universal salvation so verse 11 just for a reminder and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord so at this point, Paul is not implying universal salvation, but means that every uh, p- 
personal being will ultimately confess confess Christ's lordship, either with joyful faith or with resentment and despair. So at Christ's return, every person is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but that, I mean, think about, think about it in terms of a modern uh, country, say, say England. And I don't know much about England's politics. All I know is that there's a queen and uh, that's different enough from the United States to say that uh, if the queen wanted to, she could say, hey, everyone has to acknowledge, everyone in England has to acknowledge me as a queen. And there might be some who are, uh, you know, rebellious and hate her, but ultimately the authority of the state of England would force that those people who resent and defy England to acknowledge the uh, the rule of the queen and the um, monarchy that's there. So maybe that's not a perfect analogy, but it's it's something to kind of get the thought going that Christ is going to return and his followers and all of us who believe in him will have joyful faith, but everyone else who doesn't and naturally hates him are they're going to see him coming on the clouds and have resentment and despair and their hearts are going to continually grow harder and harder. So just for the sake of context of, you know, this idea that every knee will bow, uh, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just the, uh, just a little bit of context of the, the culture within um, the Greek culture. So Paul's writing to a church in Philippi, which is a Greek city. And so the Greeks worshipped gods in the heavens, earth, sea, and underworld. In traditional Greek mythology, also placed the shadowy existence of departed souls in the underworld. And so Paul announces that whatever categories of beings there are, they must acknowledge Christ's rule because he is he is exalted above them. So maybe Paul's not even limiting his statement to just people, but he's saying, hey, even if you're worshiping gods that are in the sky or in the underworld or on the earth or whatever, even they will have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and will have to bow their knee to him, which I think is absolutely fascinating and such a wonderful truth for us that even if we feel like we're being defeated and our uh, society is being defeated by the gods of this world, um, we can have hope that Christ will come and he will defeat them and they will go away. They'll, they'll be destroyed by Christ. And then uh, Keener also made this connection to Isaiah 45, 23, which is uh, most um, most commentators and translators would make this connection because of his Paul's use in verse 10 of every knee will bow. Um, so Isaiah 45, 23 says, I have sworn by myself, 
the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And what's really fascinating about this connection is the use of that passage that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about Yahweh. He's not talking about the coming Messiah. And so when Paul attributes this to Jesus, um, it's it's scandalous to say that Jesus is at the same level of deity and authority as Yahweh. So, yeah, Yahweh says that every knee will bow to him. This is uh, very scandalous for Paul to connect Jesus and Yahweh on the same level of being. So I'm just reading a note that I made to myself just to make sure I stayed on track, um, make sure I'm summarizing things correctly. And as we're closing things out, I just want to read a couple passages that I thought were related to this passage and related to our proper understanding of who Christ is and that he is fully divine. And while he was walking on earth and doing his ministry, he was also fully divine. Um, so Colossians 2, 8 through 10 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. For this reason, therefore—oh, sorry, I started reading John 5. So, verse 9 of Colossians 2 is, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form which is crucial for our understanding that Jesus, when he stooped down out of his compassion and he let go of his equality with God, he didn't let go of his deity. The fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. John five eighteen, which I absolutely love this verse. I love the context leading up to it where Jesus is, talking to the Pharisees and uh, they're at this point they're seeking to kill him. So I'm going to read it and it'll kind of explain some of the context for this reason. Therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Because if you think about it, if I have a son if me and my wife, you know, have when we have kids one day, those kids, if they come from my DNA, then they share the same essence of who I am. They're, they are human beings. I cannot, uh, any kid that I have cannot be a monkey. It can't be a hamster. It can't be a dog. Any son of mine has to be of the same being. So to say that Jesus is the son of God is crucial. And every time that Jesus calls God his father, when he says, uh, my father, you know, any time that he talks about the, 
God the Father. He's making himself equal with God. And, you know, he's saying that his being is, his essence is of the same nature as God. His essence is not uh, just human, but it's also, he's sharing a nature with God and sharing a nature with man. And I always get really confused and sketchy when I, uh, all these heresies and uh, other things. For some reason, I think that I'm being really clear when I start to talk about things, but I always end up being corrected by my friends and saying, hey, you actually, when you said that, you were affirming this heresy on accident. And so I try to do my reading and make sure that I understand church history and the heresies that were condemned, but I'm bad at church history. So (laughs) I like reading the Bible though. (laughs) Anyways, so that's all I got to say on that. So in conclusion, I hope that this has been helpful in your understanding of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that Jesus didn't lose any divinity. He didn't lose any of his deity. He wasn't, he didn't become God. Uh, He didn't stop being God and then return to being God. Jesus has always fully been God. And so uh, he's coming back. He came, he's coming back. And I hope that the last part of this passage is encouraging that you wouldn't bow your knee to Jesus because you have to bow. And I I hope that you don't bow out of resentment, but would, would you take this as an opportunity to repent and uh, trust that Jesus is the God man and bow in submission to his effectual work on the cross and completed work through his resurrection as well that he is the only mediator between humanity and God. And therefore, if he is the only mediator, then he is the only one who can save us. So take this opportunity to reflect and thank, thank Jesus for all that he's done. Uh, For the next week, just continue to love God and love others. Thanks for listening to this episode of Christ in Context. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and a review through Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming app you use to listen, and subscribe to be notified when new content is posted. You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Christ in Context Pod and Twitter at CNC Podcast. For other edifying material, check out the Doctrinal Discipleship Facebook group or the webpage at doctrinaldiscipleship.com.